Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Jackson P.S. Jackson is a competitive boxer, a bodybuilder, a rower, and a sports nutritionist. And on top of that, is currently completing his PhD in clinical and sports nutrition at the University of Western Australia. He also has a bachelor's in sports science and exercise and health, and an honors degree in exercise physiology. Jackson's research focuses on strategies for maximizing performance and muscle retention while reducing body fat, always known as the holy grail of weight loss. Uh, He's also directed the largest athlete weight loss trial in Australia, which is no small feat for such a young researcher. The science of weight loss is relatively simple, but when it comes to optimizing weight loss, making it easier for people to sustain and to help them achieve their goals, that's where things get very complicated. Add to that the demands of athletes that need to maintain or even improve performance or muscle, and you've got a lot of different factors to work with. That's why I was so interested in speaking with Jackson about his own research and the state of the art when it comes to intermittent dieting and when and how it should be used with athletes. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I know I learned a lot from Jackson in this chat. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for even more great podcasts. And if you can please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it really helps to promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. And on a final note, if you know someone who you think this information could benefit, maybe a coach or someone interested in optimizing fat loss while maintaining muscle, please let them know about it and maybe it can be of some help to them. So... Onto this conversation with Jackson. Let's talk science. Jackson, how are we doing, man? Good, man. How are you? Really, really good. Thanks very, very much for joining us this morning. Um, I think uh, I mentioned this to you, but uh, all of the the posts that I did ahead of this live with the picture of you, you're probably the most popular picture I've had up on my Instagram, at least amongst my female my female followers. So. Uh, thank you. And, and to all my female followers who sent me those messages, shame on you for objectifying. Jackson, how is everything in uh, Australia for you right now? I'm pretty lucky. It was, we've, could be way worse. So we're pretty much business as usual over here in Western Australia. So we can still go to the gym. We can eat at restaurants. We can go to the movie cinema. So, uh, all the things that are most important to me, I can still do, which is, which is pretty lucky. And of course, I can still get in the lab and, and do my testing now. So, uh, very grateful for that because I know that, that in a lot of other places, it, it's far, far worse. Absolutely. Like even over here in the UK, um, like we we still have we have still no idea when we're going to be able to go back to to the lab at all, um, which is a little bit scary. So all of our research has been completely put on hold. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, even if things are starting to return to normal, uh, we've got all of these little mini second waves or mini peaks, I should say, uh, which is a bit scary. So it's good to hear that you guys in, in Western Australia have things under control. Um, mm. So, um, basically, for anybody who, who might not be familiar with, with who you are, would you be able to give us a bit of an introduction 
um, to, to who you are, what you do, and maybe your, your career path so far. Yeah, so I am a PhD researcher at the University of Western Australia. Uh, and basically my research focuses on novel strategies for managing body composition uh, in athletic populations. And a large majority of my research has focused specifically on something called intermittent dieting, which is dieting protocols that incorporate either refeeds or diet breaks. So a cyclical nature of dieting where your calories are going up and down across the weight loss phase. Um, and I act, I've actually just completed the first ever diet break study in a resistance trained athlete population. It was actually the biggest athlete weight loss study of any kind that's ever happened in Australia to date. Uh, we had 60 uh, weight trained athletes coming through that study. So it was a, it was a whopping study that, that lasted uh, the better half of, of two years. Um, but I'm very thankful that that paper is now submitted and uh, under review by one of the best sports science journals in the world. Um, outside of that, I, I've focused on uh, a little bit of satiety management strategies um, and, and satiety management research. So um, ways that we can manipulate our diet to better manage hunger when we're trying to lose uh, fat. And, and hopefully I'll be able to speak more about that in the future as those studies get closer to completion. Um, and also dipping my toes in a little bit of um, some of the novel supplements um, in, in the fat loss game to see sort of what works and, and what's junk uh, so, uh, unfortunately, most things in the supplement industry tend to be junk, uh, but we're, we're t tackling a couple of a couple of things that, that haven't been looked at before. So that could uh, be pretty exciting in the future. So, outside of what I do in the lab, I am an online coach. Um, work roughly with fifty percent physique athletes and fifty percent sports athletes, so boxers. Uh, rollers, rugby players, uh, guys like that, uh, managing all the, their nutrition for either performance uh, or body composition management. And then in my free time, I am an avid consumer of sushi and an avid consumer of all things Japanese entertainment, such as anime and manga. So that's probably the most comprehensive description of me that I could give. Uh, avid consumer uh, of all things Japanese seems about appropriate because anybody who pulls up your Instagram feed or your your uh, your stories will will realize just how avid you actually are. Um, so yeah, uh, Matt, you you've given a lot there, but I think you've also been um, a little bit mod modest because you've kind of left out the the whole sporting and athletic sides of, of your past. And I was wondering just to kind of to help frame this conversation that we're going to go into. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of what sports you're, you're involved in? Yeah, so I initially uh, was, I, I played Australian rules football uh, for many years and then uh, played all the way up to semi-professionally uh, as a 22-year-old, uh, 21-year-old, sorry, so getting paid to play um, at a relatively high level. Um, decide, at, at that point in time, I had started throwing the weights around a little bit and, and noticed that, hey, my muscles get a little bit bigger when I do this and I like how that looks. Um, so I started sort of getting a little bit more interested in the weight training, um, bodybuilding side of things uh, and decided to uh, step away from the football when I knew I wasn't going to 
basically make a career out of it <clears throat> and was training a lot for sort of not too much pay. Um, so I decided to focus uh, all my, my training attention onto board towards bodybuilding um, and competed over a couple of seasons, um, competing at national level, um, bringing home a few top five placings at national levels in, in um, both natural bodybuilding and in the IFB Pro League bodybuilding. Um, men's physique, I should say, so the men's bikini division. I don't want to sound like I'm too good. Um, and then uh, now I, I've, I still lift weights. I'm not, a, not competitively bodybuilding anymore, but I am a competitive boxer. Um, so I've had a couple of fights now um, in amateur boxing and continuing to uh, train and improve my um, expertise in the, in the heavyweight boxing division. So, uh, ba- balancing most of my, my training at the moment between, uh, boxing and, and weight training. So that is damn impressive. And I think that really, really gives us a good segue into, into what we want to talk about today because your research, and we're going to get more into that, focuses on different strategies for weight loss in specifically in athletic populations. But I, I think to set us up, one of the most important things to, to speak about is probably the difference between, um, let's say, standard weight loss and fat loss in athletic populations. And I think the, the important question is, why, what does that difference exactly mean? And why is that difference relevant, especially for athletes? Yeah, so, so within sports... Um we, we talk often about these sort of weight-restricted sports or weight-limited sports, and, and that can mean either competing in a certain weight division, um, so like uh, combat sport athletes, powerlifters, guys like that. Um, but it can also, when we talk about weight-restricted, it, it can apply to sports like gymnastics or endurance running and things like that where um, the efficiency of um, exercise output is actually improved uh, at a lower body weight. So it's in those athletes' best interest to actually um, carry a lower lower body weight so it can sort of enhance the um, locomotive efficiency um, during during competition. So this basically puts us in a position wanting to lose weight. But as we know, um, one of the most substantial predictors of athletic performance in a number of sports – um, is basically lean mass and, and the ability for that lean mass to generate power and strength and torque and, and things like that. Um, now, we basically compromise the athlete's ability to perform optimally if we drop them down in body weight, but we've stripped a whole lot of their lean mass at the same time, um, basically sort of um, subsequently impairing their ability to perform optimally and to generate force um, through their musculature. So the difference between weight and fat loss is essentially when it comes from an athletic perspective, it's how can we get them down to an optimal body weight for competition so we can achieve the, the either the benefits of competing in a lower weight class or complete competing at a lower body weight for those efficiency benefits while also trying to maintain or reduce the loss of fat-free mass or, or, or lean mass. So 
everyone talks about weight loss, but what we should probably be talking more about is fat loss because that's what athletes actually, that's, that's the goal. We want to lose the fat because that's tissue that's not going to be contributing um, beneficially to performance. Whereas if we're, we want to maintain as much of that fat-free mass as we can because that tissue actually will enhance performance. Absolutely. Um, and so you've obviously mentioned re- retaining muscle mass there. Um, I suppose one of the, the issues when we, that is one of the issues when we get into chronic or long-term weight loss and people are trying to lose a large amount of weight is that muscle loss is a potential uh, negative effect. Um, again, before we kind of get into what your research focuses on specifically, what are some of the other negative effects of, let's say, a long-term calorie deficit, long-term weight loss goal? How can it affect athletes? How can it affect their performance? How can it affect even their attempts at weight loss? What are some of the issues that are presented by that weight loss that we need to kind of overcome and kind of that has led us to, to your research in the first place? Yeah, so so chronic dieting it can lead to a whole host of negative outcomes in athletic populations, namely increases in irritability, uh, increased susceptibility to illness and injury, um, decreased alertness, um, increased hunger and desire to eat, which can negatively impact focus on the competitive goal. And, and can ba- basically, when you've got an athlete and they're sort of preoccupied about what their post-training meal is going to be, um, it's quite unlikely they, that they're going to be performing optimally um, in that session. Uh, we also get um, metabolic downregulation, um, which basically means we burn less calories at rest, um, less calories during exercise, uh, which then therefore means continued weight loss becomes more difficult and even maintaining the weight loss um, becomes more difficult, threatening sort of weight, rapid weight rebound. Uh, we also get uh, a significant impairment to a number of hormones uh, such as testosterone. We know that sort of chronic dieting, specifically with lean individuals, um, testosterone tends to decline quite rapidly, which puts our lean mass under threat. Furthermore, uh, we also see increases in cortisol levels with chronic dieting, um, which again can basically encourage the storage of fat mass while also encouraging the loss of fat-free mass both things that we don't want to be happening um, as an athlete. Uh, We get basically changes in in our appetite-regulating hormones. Uh, So we're getting these reductions in leptin, circulations in the bloodstream, and increases in ghrelin in the bloodstream, which basically is making us hungrier throughout the day and making our meals less satiating, um, which basically gives us more persistent drives to eat, which is encouraging us to basically fall off our our, our program and threatens our ability to adhere to the protocol long-term and basically maintain that target body weight or body composition. So, yeah, those things off the top of my head are probably the most substantial negative impacts of of sort of that long-term dieting that that tend to take place. So so it's almost like that um, everything is working 
against somebody's goals when they're trying to lose mm. a substantial amount of weight. Yeah. Um, I know, and I of, know course, that of course, there. performance. That, that's performance is probably a big one that that we need to stay. The the longer you're dieting and the leaner you get, um, the more at risk of your performance suffering. And we got to remember that that unless you're a bodybuilder, um, the for the large majority of actual athletes, uh, it doesn't matter if, if they're shredded with veins and abs all over the place uh, if they can't perform optimally during their competitions or training. Absolutely. Um, and I, I know that you're recently, you've uh, been doing a, uh, a bit of a dieting stint, stint yourself, a cutting phase. Have you noticed any of, let's say, the side effects of uh, extended dieting yourself? Yeah. And like I have, and I wouldn't even call that extended dieting. So I only went for 12 weeks. Um, but yeah, that, that second half of the diet, um, notice, just moving a whole lot slower, um, uh, which is indicative of, of decreases in NEAT, so your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. You're just fidgeting and moving around more. But your body's basically encouraging you to move less and burn less calories. Um, notice uh, quite significant increase in sort of preoccupation with food and, and, and thoughts just drifting into sort of what am I going to have for dinner or what can I, am I going to have on the weekend or, or, or things like that. So food focus definitely increased. And when that, whenever that's happening, your focus on sort of the more important things like your training and your, and your work, um, those things are going to suffer. Um, I, I got sick at the end of, end of my dieting phase. Um, and I, I haven't been sick for, I didn't get sick once during my off season, which went for like nine months. Um, and, but yeah, week 11 of my diet, bang, got the flu. Um, hashtag COVID. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I got the flu, which just highlights my point. I said before there, like chronic dieting does increase your susceptibility, um, to illness. Uh, and then my sleep took a knock. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I just find it's very hard to get seven or eight hours um, when my calories are low and my body fat's coming down. Um, and I think it's just an evolutionary mechanism at play there where basically the body's just saying, hey, like you're mildly starving right now. Go out and hunt and forage and like <laughs> don't sleep. You're going to die. Like go, go and find some berries or go kill a lion or something. Um, so, yeah, sleep suffered a little bit. And, and then just finally like training. Um, training is just a whole lot more difficult. Um and if it's getting more difficult, that's telling me that, that sort of performance is taking a knock too. Um, and basic, and definitely desire to train, um, was, was sort of, um, reducing as well. And that, and that's a big thing for me because I, I love training. So, uh, whenever I'm not really like, eh, about training, that's a pretty good sign to me that sort of the calories are, are kicking my ass a little bit. So, so basically, all of these things that you've spoken about, you're talking about like a, a lack of desire to train, uh, uh, an increased preoccupation on food, lower energy output, lower mo lower levels of movement. They're all things that are basically slowing down or reducing your chances or reducing the speed of you getting to the desired body weight that you that you want to be at. Now, you're mm -hmm. obviously quite a, a lean individual, but. Is there a difference between the effects of this extended dieting on somebody who is lean or an athlete and somebody who has a considerably larger amount of body fat to lose? 
Oh, totally. And, and that's, that's well supported by the research. Um, just to give you a couple of comparisons, when you're dieting down someone with overweight or obesity, uh, typically you actually see improvements in their anabolic hormone profiles and increases in their testosterone levels. Uh, whereas, as, as we said, we contrast that to a dieting lean individual where we actually see their testosterone plummet. Um, and then another comparison is um, basically when, when an athlete sub 10% for a male or, or 20% for a female, uh, it's almost impossible for them to not lose a, a further body fat without also losing some lean mass. I just, I just never see it happen. Um, whereas we contrast that to an overweight or obese person who they can lose 10% of their body weight uh, with no loss of lean mass whatsoever uh, because basically body fat tends to have this very protective effect um, over lean mass. And, and I, I think it's just kind of obvious because um, – like when the body's looking at looking for basically a fuel source uh, and it's got this massive depot of fat on this overweight or obese person, it makes a whole lot more sense for it to just pull from there as opposed to going for like a um, a smaller depot of, of fuel or energy. So, yeah, it's definitely um, the fatter you are, the uh, the less severe the negative dieting side effects are going to be. Um, And likewise, the lean you are, the more severe um, they're going to be and the more the diet's going to suck. Okay. So, like, you've got, like, a a relatively nice J-shaped curve there where, you you know, if somebody's losing body fat, you start to see a lot of these improvements in health uh, or at least in some of those metabolic markers um, and some of those anabolic hormones especially. And then when we start really getting into... uh, let's say, an extended diet where people, people are losing a lot of body fat, that's when the body's saying, okay, hold up, I need to hold on to some of this this mass, and that's when things start getting a little bit bad in the opposite direction again. Um, yep. So your research is, is focusing on, on intermittent energy restriction, and I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that means specifically and why people are, or why there is interest in this particular form of dieting or this particular strategy, um, what makes it useful? Yeah, so intermittent dieting, it, it, it basically just means you are dieting in small little bursts alternated with higher feeding periods. So diet for a little bit, then increase calories for a little bit, then diet again, and, and you basically go through this cyclical nature until you've lost the, the necessary amount uh, of, of body weight or body fat. Um, and of course that would contrast the traditional method of continuous dieting, which is just diet throughout the, every day for the duration of the weight loss or, or, or fat loss phase. Now, the reason that there is interest in, in this specific form of dieting. Now, now when I say these higher feeding periods, what I'm referring to is a diet break or a refeed. So a, re, a refeed might be an increase in calories that happens during the diet uh, anywhere from one to three days, whereas a diet break is a little bit longer. So it's increasing calories uh, for about seven days, sometimes even up to 14 days. Now, with refeeds, people will typically prescribe them once a week, sometimes once a fortnight, uh, whereas diet breaks, they tend to happen a little bit less frequently, so perhaps once a month or, or once every two months. But basically, the, the concept of, of a refeeds and diet breaks is the same. They're, they're trying to achieve the same goal. And that goal is to minimize some of the negative side effects that we just discussed that typically accompany um, dieting. In theory, if we, 
increased calories for a short period of time, that should lead to that should lead to a normalization or a partial restoration in some of these sort of variables or markers. So basically what we wanted to see, and this is a very new area of research, so we didn't have the studies to basically um, to pull from. So we, we were sort of trailblazing um, this, this area of research to some degree. Um, and, and basically what we wanted to do is, was have two groups whereas one's sort of just going with the traditional continuous dieting approach for, let's say, 12 weeks, whereas we compare this to an intermittent dieting group that use diet breaks. And we wanted to see, is, do they get less of a reduction in their metabolic rate? Are they less irritable? Um, do we see sort of better management of some of their hormone profiles when they're using diet breaks? So that's basically the concept. Um, and in theory, it would make sense that sort of having those um, intermittent refeeds or diet breaks could lead to better outcomes because it's basically giving the body a signal that like, hey, like food isn't in such short supply anymore. Uh, we're not starving. We're not sort of, we're not in a famine. You can make, you can maybe start turning on back of the, some of these um, sort of systems that we're sort of taking a down regulation um, during the diet. So yeah, that, that's basically the theory. Um, but, but the issue is just largely untested and we, we didn't really have, um, the studies to pull from or, or the data. So be before we kind of get into the, the specifics of, of your, your research itself, I was wondering, can you tell us what are some of the, the, the proposed mechanisms by which like, the, the, this intermittent dieting and these, these kind of refeed periods or um, these diet breaks, how is it that they can improve the, the outcomes of a diet? Um, and I suppose it, it's really, really important to, to specify that when, when we're talking about a diet, we have to talk about the outcome at the end, which is weight loss. That, that is what somebody is aiming for. So what mechanisms are helping people to achieve that weight loss at the end? Or, or what, what are at least some of the proposed mechanisms? Yeah, so there's a couple of ideas that we had. Uh, and one is that um, basically diet breaks or refeeds will better support uh, your metabolic rate or reduce the reduction in metabolic rate that happens um, with weight loss. Because if that was the case, basically it means that you're burning less calories. I'm sorry, you're burning, you'd be burning more calories because your metabolic rate doesn't come down so far. And that would therefore lead to a greater overall caloric deficit, therefore um, leading to overall greater body weight loss or body fat loss. Whereas if we contrast that to, to a group who had their metabolic rate sort of crash with the diet, that's going to mean that they lead to sort of weight loss, fat, fat loss plateaus quite quickly and perhaps don't lead to sort of as good weight and fat loss. So that's one of, one of the ideas that we had is that basically we could maintain a higher metabolic rate with diet breaks or refeeds and basically allowing them to burn more, burn more weight and more fat for longer. Um, another idea is that we had is basically comes down to this idea of leptin, which is the, the hormone we mentioned before, which is a satiety hormone. Um, and basically, when we diet, we secrete less leptin, or when we lose fat, we secrete less leptin. Uh, and this basically means uh, that we get more hungry. And leptin is also a regulator of how many calories we burn in a day. So when we secrete less leptin, we also burn less calories. Um, now, there's been some early 
overfeeding studies published in sort of the last 15 years, which showed when you overfeed people with carbohydrates acutely, it leads to this short-term boost in leptin levels and therefore a short-term increase in daily energy expenditure or, or calorie burn. So what we thought is, hey, if we gave them a carbohydrate-dominant diet break, this might just lead to this short-term release of leptin into the blood, which not only increases the amount of calories that we're burning throughout the day, but is also going to lead to better satiety and is also perhaps going to lead to better adherence. So there's less sort of oopsie moments on the diet. They stick to their plan a little bit more, and that could even indirectly lead to, to better weight and fat loss at the end. So they were sort of the, the main um, sort of rationales that we had. Um, and I'll just say finally that the, the last one that we thought could have had something to do with it is this idea of restoring glycogen intermittently. Um, so we know that when sort of carbohydrates are restricted and we're losing weight and, and losing fat, we also reduce our muscle glycogen stores. And when that happens, training tends to be comp compromised somewhat. Um, and we also see reductions in muscle protein synthesis. Basically, when we have an empty muscle glycogen cell, uh, muscle protein synthesis just tends to sort of shut down or, or, or um, reduce. So we thought, hey, if, we, if every three weeks, if we just top their glycogen stores up with a seven-day refeed coming from lots of carbohydrates, maybe that might just, A, allow them to sort of train a little bit harder in the gym and perform a little bit more optimally, um, and B, top up those glycogen stores so the muscle protein synthesis sensor can be like, hey, okay, we're not we're not a flat cell. We don't have to sort of ramp down muscle protein synthesis. We can sort of maintain uh, a more positive protein balance state. So you mentioned something that's, that's I think is quite key and really, really important to, to, to go into detail on, and that's so you've spoken about higher carbohydrate refeed. So I, I know that when the word refeed or the word diet break when somebody hears that, they immediately go into their head and start thinking of all the things that they want to eat. And, you know, it's like everybody goes, I want a lasagna, I want some ice cream, I want some chips, whatever. I, I think it's kind of important at this point to talk about what's the difference between a, a properly structured uh, refeed or diet break according to, you know, what you're going to be using in your research and let's say a complete, and, and I absolutely hate this word, a, a cheat day or a cheat meal or a cheat week. What's the difference? Yeah. In, Screw in, the rock for making cheat meals so popular, hey? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? Um, everybody with pancakes. Um, well, like, what, he makes them look damn cool. That's <laughs> so if we think in, in terms of diet composition and if we think in terms of outcome, what are, what are the difference between the two? Yeah, so uh, the ideal way to structure a refeed or diet break, we think, is to take your calories from a deficit up to your predicted maintenance. And that can be done with relative ease with a prediction equation or, or things like that. Or if you, if you knew your maintenance calories at the start of your diet, you can just account for the loss of body weight that's happened during the diet and just titrate your maintenance calories down somewhat because when you have less body weight, your, your basically maintenance calories will, will come down by default. So the difference, obviously, with a cheat day would be unrestricted intake of calories, um, whereas a, a properly structured um, refeed or a diet break is just taking the calories up to maintenance. Now, there's also a difference in sort of the macronutrient breakdown. 
So a cheat day is probably just eat whatever the hell tastes the nicest. Um, and it's probably going to be the foods that taste the nicest are often, often high carb and high fat together. Um, so think like cheesecakes, pancakes and peanut butter, cookies, all the things that the, the rock eats, pizza. Um, whereas what we think is going to be most optimal for a refeed or diet break is going to be, uh, the increase in calories coming predominantly, if not all from carbohydrates. So, Let's say that if you added um, 300 calories um, on your refeed day, we think it would be in your best interest to have 75 grams of carbohydrates increasing on your, on your daily intake, which would provide that extra 300 calories. Um, and we just think that uh, increasing carbohydrates and not fats is in your best interest because Fats don't really do anything for saturating muscle glycogen. They don't really do anything for performance. Uh, they don't really do anything for um, restoring leptin levels, um, whereas carbohydrates, uh, leptin seems to be more sensitive to carbohydrate. Carbohydrates will top up muscle glycogen. Carbohydrates are fuel for high-intensity exercise. It's just uh, uh, if we're sort of putting the, the fats versus the carbs, there's just a whole lot of ticks on the carb side and not many ticks on the fat side. Um, fats don't really do anything good from an athlete perspective. Once you've got your minimum intake of fats coming in, fats don't really extra fats don't really do anything beneficial apart from make your food taste a little bit nicer. Um, so yeah, to summarize, um, structured refeeds and diet breaks, taking calories to maintenance with most of those calories coming from an increase in carbohydrate intake. Whereas a cheat day or a cheat meal is just going to be an unrestricted intake um, of calories um, with an indiscretionary breakdown of, of carbs and fats, which is, is usually a, a, a large increase in carbs and fats. Um, and in terms of the, like the targeted outcome of each, um, we talked about for refeeds and diet breaks, the idea is to try to mitigate some of those negative adaptations that accompany the weight and fat loss. Um, I guess some people will say that, that cheat meals and cheat days are used for the same purpose, um, but I think it's just a cop-out. I think people just want to eat some nice food every now and again, and, and they use that to sort of justify uh, that behavior. Uh, but I certainly don't think uh, – I, I certainly do think cheat meals are suboptimal to refeeds and diet breaks because even if – cheat meals or cheat days led to sort of better maintenance of metabolic rate or hormonal profiles or um, uh, better maintenance of, of lean mass, um, those benefits are going to be outweighed by the addition of body weight, body fat that occurs during that, during that 24 hours or 48 hours, depending on how hard your, how hard your cheat goes. Um, and yeah, it's just, the, the benefits that we're discussing with refeeds and diet breaks when it comes to hormones and, and metabolism and things like that, they're, they're, they're not huge and they're certainly not big enough to basically um, uh, basically account for an additional um, accumulation of body fat that would occur from a cheat meal or a cheat day. So uh, you, you mentioned in, in, in your, one of your reviews that with carbohydrates, if somebody is eating in a slight calorie surplus, there isn't a chance that carbohydrates will be stored or well, some of them will be stored more as muscle glycogen, some of them will be um, oxidized, whereas fats tend to preferentially get stored as fat. Um, is, is there a huge amount of evidence to show that? So basically, it, what it just means is um, for 
for carbohydrate to end as body fats, it is a more extensive chemical process. It, it, it takes um, it takes a further amount of time, basically. Whereas um, when we uh, ingest fat, it's a fairly simple process for that to be stored as adipose. Um, but for de novo lipogenesis to, to occur, which is basically the storage of glucose as fat, it takes a lot longer and a lot more steps and a lot more processes. Um, so this was basically theoretical speculation um, in that theoretical paper. And basically what we were speculating is, hey, because there's a longer wait time between the storage of glucose to basically arriving in adipose. It gives more time for it to be used towards training or used to saturate muscle glycogen. And therefore, the more, the more of that, that glucose that can go towards those processes, the less, the less it's going to be sort of um, left over for, for sort of storage in body fat. So we sort of speculate that, hey, maybe if, if, um, if we went with a bit of a higher carb approach, um, when that body, when the body is trying, because we've got to remember the body's dieted down, and it's in a, it's very, it's in a predisposed state to store the hell out of nutrients as soon as you, as soon as you sort of ingest them. Um, that's why rapid weight rebound uh, happens so commonly um, with a lot of people. So we just think that if you are going to refeed um, and increase your calories, uh, there's just going to be a, a slight reduced likelihood of a lot of those calories being stored as fat if, if you're consuming most of them from carbohydrate. Because you've got to remember that, that we've got, when, when you are having a refeed or a diet break, you're going to have basically an empty muscle glycogen cell. So when we consume carbohydrates, we can basically fill those buckets first. And then whatever's left over, okay, maybe that will go to fat. But when we can, let's say if we refeed from 300 calories coming off from fat, it ain't going to go it's not going to fill the buckets of glycogen, so it's got more chance of basically being stored in the fat buckets, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It's, it's good kind of to talk about those little differences because I think a lot of people feel that, you know, like I said earlier, it's very, very easy for people to associate a refeed or a diet break with a cheat meal where it's, a, it's basically just, you know, everything, all stops are gone and people are just eating whatever they want. And that can probably lead to, you know, you know, eventually it's poor body composition than somebody's starting with. So it's good to see that there's kind of a, a structure to that. Um, now, you, you did mention that uh, another thing that I kind of wanted to touch on, which is some of the uh, associated effects of changes in hormones that come with, with refeeding. And from my understanding, a lot of those effects with, with you know, refeeds or potentially with diet breaks, are, they tend to be quite acute changes in, for example, you know, resting at a metabolic rate tends to increase when we eat more, which is understandable. But that tends to be quite a, an acute phenomenon just when somebody is, is eating more calories. We get a, a spike in metabolism and then that goes down as soon as somebody returns to that, um, that dieting phase. Is that the case, and uh, and is that the case with leptin as well, for example, and other hormones, or uh, is that the case, or and is there a more of a case to be made for, let's say, the psychological uh, effect that a diet break has on improving somebody's adherence to a diet? All right, I'm going to let you peek behind the curtain a little bit with this one. Um, so. So, yeah, the first thing in terms of the, the acute increase in, in resting metabolic rate um, occurring after refill or diet break, it is absolutely short-lived. Um, and uh, it is much shorter 
than most people would suspect. Um, so basically when, when I looked at my data with the diet break study, and, and this is data that's not actually going in, into the paper. This is just study, this is just data that I played around with, right? Um, so what I saw was that if I measured their metabolic rate immediately before and immediately after the diet break, so at day zero and day eight of the diet break, I saw roughly an increase in 150 calories um, on, on their resting metabolic rate um, per day. Now, people might see that and think, hell yeah, like that's, that's notable. Um, if we map that out over, over um, a 12-week weight loss phase, that might mean I can, I can eat 150 extra calories a day, bonus. Um, but what happens when you look at the day when you, you diet them just for a couple more days when they go back into their deficit and they only need to be back in that deficit for two or three days, all of a sudden that increase in metabolic rate isn't there anymore. So it's extremely short-lived and because it's so short-lived, what my perspective is now is that diet breaks, they just don't have a very profound effect on maintaining metabolic rate overall um yes they do give a short-term little boost but it's too short to basically lead to overall better fat oh, overall better better fat loss in my opinion um so yeah you, you hit the nail on the head head there um the 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 metabolic benefits of diet breaks are probably a little bit overblown um and uh yes they do enhance diet breaks do enhance metabolic rate but i think it's just too short for there, there to be any practical significance. Now, um, in terms of the whole leptin um, scenario, I think leptin's a big one that's been overblown too. Um, and I think ba the problem basically came from when everyone got really hyped up about leptin, they were all sort of citing these studies um, that were published by like Rosenbaum and Chin Chance but 10 years ago, but they were overfeeding studies. So... Like, we've got to remember that refeeds and diet breaks, we're taking people to maintenance calories. We're not, we're not taking them to, to massive calorie surpluses or, or anything like that. And we've got to remember leptin is released by body fat cells. So if you are overfeeding someone in a surplus, that's going to lead to an increase in your fat cells or increase in your fat cell size and therefore, obviously, an increase in the secretion of leptin. But if we're doing a refeed or diet break at maintenance calories, we're not adding body fat. So therefore, it, it doesn't make sense that we're going to be able to secrete massive amounts more um, of leptin. And I, I, I saw exactly that happen um, in my study. And basically, the, the, and it's, it's been replicated in Bill Campbell's study too. They, they saw insignificant effects on leptin when, we, when they gave their athletes a two-day refeed. Um, and basically, I saw insignificant effects on leptin too, even with a seven-day diet break. So everyone used to think leptin was this sort of heavyweight hitter in, in sort of the whole refeed and diet break game. But uh, I, just, I just don't think it's where we should be putting our attention to anymore. Um, and if there are any benefits coming from refeeds or diet breaks, I certainly don't think they're coming from leptin. Now... Psychologically, do I think there's benefits? Absolutely. I think they're probably the biggest benefits um, that uh, that would warrant use of, of refeeds or diet breaks. Um, I'm fairly confident upon looking at some of my early data that diet breaks lead to overall less hunger 
uh, and, and greater satiety. And I think that that encourages easy adherence to the plan. And I actually think that's why the group who used diet breaks in the Matador study, which used a two-week diet, two-week diet break approach, I think that's the reason why they saw better fat loss in that group. I think that hunger was just better managed in the group using diet breaks, and that enabled them to stick to the plan a little bit better, allowing them to, to lose more body fat. Um, and I saw a similar thing replicated in my study. I also saw that um, we know that hunger is linked to a number of other sort of psychological disturbances and disturbances to our mood state, like irritability, alertness, focus, and things like that. Um, and uh, some of the early things that I'm looking at show that um, that diet breaks are causing reduced hunger, and this is having a flow-on effect to basically less irritability and higher alertness because you're sort of more alert. You're not thinking about food all the time and, and things like that. Um, brain obviously relies on glucose, um, whereas we, we compare that to the, the continuous dieting group. Um, it seemed like hunger just sort of blew out uh, quite significantly, and that was sort of um, accompanied by these sort of uh, increases in irritability and moodiness and, and greater mood disturbance um, and decreases in, in alertness. They just weren't as focused anymore. So psychologically, I think I think diet breaks do um, warrant utility. Absolutely, um, and, and I, I think it's it's important to, to highlight, you know, like that even if, for example, you know, you said leptin, there, there, there it, it, it's, it's a role is overhyped. Um, the increase in metabolic rate, it's overhyped as well. Um, and people are always looking for physiological mechanisms behind what's going on. And obviously, there, there's going to be some physiological mechanisms that we just happens that we don't understand fully yet. But at the end of the day, that's psychological benefit that you you know that that you're you're speaking about. That's a very very real effect, having very very real effect on outcome, and it's still damn important. Even even if leptin isn't doing it, even if you know um, an increase in metabolic rate isn't. So it's great to have you know research like your own coming out and kind of showing us you know basically contributing to the body of knowledge that we already have. Um, just for anybody who. Uh, who wants to know what your the design of your study actually is? How how have, did you set up your 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 study, and what was the kind of the frequency of um, uh, refeeds and the frequency of diet breaks? How, what did the study actually look like? Yeah, so like I said, we had sixty athletes recruited, and we split the cohort fifty fifty between a continuous dieting group. Uh, and an intermittent dieting group using diet breaks. Um, and we just used a random allocation. So the group who was in the continuous diet, they did 12 weeks of straight dieting with a relatively moderate calorie deficit, uh, aiming to lose around 0.7% of their body weight per week. So a relatively moderate amount of weight loss. The intermittent diet group, they also did 12 weeks of dieting total but after every three weeks of dieting, they had a one-week diet break where they increased their calories to maintenance, and that increase in calories came all from carbohydrates. So basically, that meant that their intervention lasted a little bit longer because they had to factor in the extra diet breaks, um, but they still did overall the same amount of dieting weeks. Okay. Um, and when it comes to monitoring their diets, how, how did you go about it? And Obviously, working with 
athletes, and I know that in, in your population, we're talking about a population of resistance-trained individuals. Did, did you find it difficult or easy, or what were some of the things that you noticed with trying to monitor adherence to the diet in, in, in that particular population? I was pretty lucky because the, the guys that I did recruit, they were relatively experienced athletes. It would have been a world of hurt if it was more of like a Gen Poppy style cohort um, because when working with those guys, it, you, it just becomes, a, a, there's a whole lot more dramas and a whole lot more roadblocks that you need to go through. Whereas the athletes, the large majority of the athletes that I had access to, this wasn't their first rodeo and it certainly wasn't their, their first hard diet. Like a number of them have had multiple contest preps um, under the belt. So like 0.7% body weight losses per week for 12 weeks of walking the park for, for some of those guys once I've done a few um, contest preps. So um, I found that adherence overall was really quite good. Um, and in terms of how I monitored adherence, and basically, uh, every Sunday, uh, I would contact the participants and we'd go through their their diet logs. Um, and every single day um, in, a, in an online spreadsheet that we both had access to, they would input their body weight, their calorie intake for the day, their protein, carbs, fats, and fiber intake for the day, some other reports based on sort of perhaps any deviations to the plan, um, their uh, what their training was like and, and things like that. And... and we just, we just kept every week throughout the diet study, um, I checked in with them to make sure that they were sort of staying accountable and that they knew that they had someone um, checking up on them. But, yeah, I think, uh, I think the adherence was unusually good for a weight loss study um, just because of, of the, the caliber of athletes that I had access to. Yeah, I, I think just, just as somebody who works with gen pop uh, people in, in kind of dietary interventions, I want to say that uh, that's ridiculous that you were able to get that amount of adherence to be able to, yeah, to get I, people. I, 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 did have a, I did have a couple. Like, so I, I, I learned very quickly that I needed to tighten on my eligibility criteria because I was quite, I was a little bit relaxed in the first sort of intake that I had. Of like my first intake of like five people, um, and I, I I sort of just let let in sort of anyone that fit the criteria or, or fit the the bill as per was laid out in the in the protocol paper, um, and a couple of those people were probably borderline like yes they fit the criteria but not what we consider like hardcore athletes uh, what me and you would consider hardcore athletes, and then sure enough like week three I'm get I get a text message late at night like from one of them, can I have a cheat meal? And then it's like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't have a fucking cheat meal. <laughs> like, so like they're, they're some of the sort of problems that you have to go through when working with like a Gen Poppy style cohort. But um, I, I learned very quickly after that, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to weed out the Gen Poppy guys who apply for this study. And, like, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at working out who are, the, like, the serious athletes. And, and if they've done contest preps and things like that, I'm like, okay, like, you you, you come. Um, but, yeah, I turned away a lot of people after that. Well, it's, it's, it's good that you, you know, your recruitment was so good that you were able to turn people away because, like, you know, working with, with Gen Pop and, you know, in, in my case, I work with, with older individuals, um, getting people to, like, the fact that you were able to get people to fill in daily body weights and to fill out a full, like, fill out my fitness pal every day, you know, 
I sometimes struggle with getting people to fill out a three-day food diary at the beginning and the end of a study. So, um, man, you're 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 living the dream of a, of a nutrition <laughs> Thank you, um, the Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so just before we finish up, um, and I, I know you have recently submitted uh, your manuscript from the IceCap trial, and I, I wanted to ask two things kind of very, very briefly. One, how does it feel to, to finally submit something that you've been working on for so long? And then two, I know you can't give away any details, but there, is there anything that you can tell us about the study uh, as regards to kind of how things ended up um, with results-wise? Yeah. So the feeling of submitting, uh, you would think it would be a joyous occasion and lots of celebration. Honestly, it was just a whole lot of release. Um, like people don't understand, like I've been looking at this manuscript for at least 11 months and I would have gone through maybe 40 or 50 edits with, with like across the six authors that are also on the paper um, so like I, I can just about damn well recite that paper word for word. Like that's how many times I've read it and gone through it and, and fuck, like you, you look at one piece of work for that long. Like it almost like it definitely, you definitely lose the love for it a little bit and it's definitely lost the novelty. Like damn that when I was drafting that, that, that manuscript the first time, it was like, I was like on a high, I was, was bumping that stuff out. And then like seven months down the track with that same paper and you send it to send it to authors for a review and they come back with more suggestions and more feedback and more tweaks. Um, it sort of breaks the soul a little bit. Um, but I understand like I, I, a couple of the authors um, on this paper, they're very, very well-versed researchers with hundreds and hundreds of high-level publications under their belt. And they know that it's a better idea to spend an extra four or five months just polishing, just tweaking, just changing, um, so that you don't get you you're sort of don't get knocked back at the at the submission process because you get sub, you get knocked back. That just puts a whole another six months on top of things anyway. Um, they, they just know that it, it's in your best interest to really make sure everything's just so tight um, and there's no holes and there, there's nowhere that peer review can sort of pick at. Um, so I think that's that's just why it, it took so long. But, yeah, massive relief to finally have it off my desk and, and not have to look at it for, for a little while longer. Damn, if, when it gets published, I don't even think I'll read it because I've looked at it that many times. Um, now, what did, what did we see? Um, obviously, can't give too much away. But um, just speaking broadly, uh, I will say that it's going to cause a lot of discussion when these findings get published, even more so perhaps than the discussion that was generated around ice cap and things like that. Um, it's basically going to change um, a lot of the ways that we think about diet breaks specifically um, and just um, a lot of the rationales and a lot of the proposed benefits that we thought diet breaks had are going to be basically flipped um, because, uh, yeah, and I'll just say to make it more clearly, a lot of the benefits that I proposed in my theoretical paper, theoretical consider intermittent dieting, theoretical considerations for the athlete, a lot of those benefits are not supported by the data. So um, I've had to change my stance in a big way. Um, and, and and you're probably going to hear me on the podcast in six months' time after you get published. And the, 
the way I talk about diet breaks is going to be in stark contrast to the way that I've been speaking about them previously. So, um, yeah, some people are probably going to be disappointed um, with with some of the findings because um, they're they're not what we expected, or we not they're not how we thought. Then they didn't sort of dish up the benefits that we thought diet breaks do. Um, but that's the reason why we do the science. And that's the reason why we do the studies is we don't know the freaking answers. So, um, yeah, uh, I probably can't say too much more than that. Um, but just that uh, it's going to, yeah, it's going to leave a few people scratching their heads to some degree. Um, and I think it's going to change the way that we look at and discuss diet breaks in the future. That that that's like an absolute tease, or like you know, you just kind of you, you make you you make people want to bite, and then they're like, you're not going to give anything away. But but mate, that that's that's a really that's you know the, the sign of of a good scientist, and the sign of good science is that you know you take the evidence when it comes, and you're willing to adjust your views and adjust your overall opinion based on what the evidence is showing. So it's fantastic that we've got, you know, people like yourself doing this research out here and answering these questions that need to be, that need to be answered. Um, Jackson, I just want to say thank you so much for, for this conversation. I like, I, I know I've gotten a huge amount out of it myself. And I'm sure people who are listening to this, have gotten a huge amount out of it too. Um, for anybody who wants to, to follow up and, and kind of follow your career and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, best place to get me is on Instagram, just at Jackson Pios. Uh, that's where, I'm most active, uh, but if you're a real gangster, uh, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. That's my new little, uh, new little baby that I've been working on at the moment. So I'm trying to post around fortnightly on there. Uh, so you get a beautiful combination of science, training, food, and the Japanese arts on there. So um, yeah, if, if, if you want to keep up to date with my work, um, Instagram's best place. Um, and if you're looking for more of my educational stuff um, and entertainment stuff, YouTube's good too. And everybody, if you're not following Jackson already, get on it. He puts out some great content, does put out a lot of stuff on uh, the Japanese arts and vertical commas, um, a lot of sushi stuff as well. Uh, check it out. Jackson, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and hopefully we'll get a chance to speak with you again um, you know, once uh, you've, you've changed and reformed your, your opinions on, uh, on diet break. So um, thanks very much, mate, and um, uh, have a great uh, evening. My pleasure, man. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at B More Nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.